Welcome back. Hit Factory here. My name is Aaron. I'm Carly. And you are tuned in to Den Zember, a month-long celebration of the 90s output of our greatest living actor, Denzel Washington. Our guest today, we are very pleased to bring to the show, uh, is a host of Chapo Trap House and the grandmaster of movie mindset, Will Meneker. Will, welcome to Hit Factory. A uh, pleasure to be here. It's an honor to ce- help celebrate uh, Den Zember with you guys. Thank We're you thrilled. Uh, did, did I get the title right, by the way? Are you still Grandmaster? Is it God Emperor now? What are you <laughs> uh, with Movie I, Mindset? I have yet to ascend to Movie Godhood, but I'm hoping around season two of Movie Mindset, uh, my inauguration will be complete. <laughs> Very good. Uh, before we get into our conversation today, though, Will, I, I think we need to have a, a brief conversation on something else. Uh, it's important for us to hold our friends accountable and people who we bring to the show. And some of your comments recently online uh, harmed a community of people. I'm talking, of course, about fans of the 1997 John Woo film Face Off. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I thought it was the Ridley heads coming for me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're we're mixed on Ridley. I mean, I I enjoy many of his films, but but I, I know that there were some people who were very hurt by your your calling face off boring, I think was the word that you used. Will <laughs> I? I mean, okay. Look, uh, obviously, John Woo is is a master. Face off is a movie that I adored when I was fourteen, but I recently uh, had opportunity to see it in the theater again, and man, it it just uh, it did not hold up for me. I mean. <laughs> uh, it did not hold up for me, and I, I think I think it's coasting by on its reputation of just like epic Travolta and Nick Cage uh, bozo acting, which is like you know it, it has its charms, but for me it could not sustain the energy of what felt like a like a four hour movie, or or, or the essentially ridiculous premise of the movie either. Yeah. <laughs> sure, yeah, I mean it's it's a longer film of his for sure, and it certainly certainly feels its length after a certain point. Um, there's a couple of okay action sequences. I feel like you get your customary characteristic John Woo doves in it a lot. I like the boat scene at the end, but I mean, yeah, there's some cool stuff. I mean, there's some cool stunts with the boat stuff, but like the fact that it's a John Woo movie and the climax is essentially a boat race instead of um, a gunfight. <laughs> it, was you know kind of disappointing to me, and you know if if for no other reason I am putting this in movie jail for the absurd Archer family hands on face hello I love you move that is done repeatedly throughout that movie, and it made me want to die every time I saw uh, it. All right, they're they've got a very intense family history. They do. I guess we got to stop doing the hands on our face thing to each other when we greet one another. Um, yeah. Um, no, I I appreciated the take, Will, for no other reason other than I used it as a jumping off point to say that I hated Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which like <laughs> did not go over well with anyone. <laughs> wow. Okay. I mean, I, I thought I, I thought I was I thought I was brave for uh, sharing my unsolicited <laughs> my unsolicited opinions on Letterboxd, but man, that is yeah. 
you gave me that some is- juice and like you know i paid the price for it but um <laughs> yeah i <laughs> I don't need to talk about that. No, <laughs> we've got our own episode dedicated to that with other friends. But, uh, you know, I, I will say this, Will. We've we've forgiven you here at Hit Factory HQ because I think it's I think it's really important and vital as an interesting uh, movie goer and movie enjoyer to have a couple of like canonical titles that you just don't vibe with. In fact, it makes you like more interesting, I think, as an art appreciator. Well, thank you. And I mean, you know, to, I'm just like to, to set the record straight. Uh, Hard Target remains one of my favorite films of all time. So and, and you know what? And Broken Arrow. I got to give some love to Broken Arrow as well. But, you know, Hard Target to me is like that's Wu's best American movie. I Absolutely. Think, yeah, I think I'd agree with you there. Um, what about our, our Wind Talkers and Paycheck? How does that go over for you? You know, like uh, Wind Talkers, that's another movie that I, I watched like, I don't know, about a year ago and I was expecting to like it because it's like, you know, ooh, John Woo, Pacific Theater, World War II, like cool story about, you know, like the Navajo contribution to the Pacific <laughs> campaign. I mean, it was incredibly violent, but I got to say, once again, it felt like 10 hours long. And I was just sort of, <laughs> by the end of it, I was just like, uh, I, okay, I, I get the point. And, but Paycheck, though, based on a Philip K. Dick story, I'm going to say, like, that's my wild card. Uh, that's the one I'm going to be interested by saying, I like Paycheck. Yep. Me too. <laughs> we, we just rewatched it last week. We, ha- we had a pretty good time with it. It's not, not the best of films, but it is like Ben, Paul Giamatti going bozo mode in that and doing a good job with it they seem to know what kind of movie they're doing if you are dealing with philip k dick ideas it's going to be interesting like no matter what that is like that is just like you could dress it up dress it down put ben affleck and his big chin in there and like it doesn't matter it's still gonna be an interesting watch i i guess it's just like i appreciate john woo in the context of the action it's like you know shooting someone off a motorcycle and, yes. and not these like bigger, grander kind of like World War II set pieces or, yeah, or in the case of Face Off, um, a boat chase. Uh, well, now that that's out of the way, I, I appreciate you explaining yourself, Will, and I hope that this goes uh, a long way toward rectifying some of the damage with some of the people who uh, I know have been uh, been hurt by some of the words. I am learning. I am growing. I hear all voices. <laughs> Well, thank you for that. We appreciate it. And, and thank you for being so uh, receptive to to our interrogation of it. Uh, but that is not what we're going to talk about for the rest of this episode. Today, we actually have uh, a Denzel movie. Uh, and we're going to be discussing 1995 Carl Franklin Noir, Devil in a Blue Dress. She was beaten and died of a blow to the back of the head. In a world. He doesn't belong. I just want some answers. Sorry, fella. My name's not fella. Easy Rollins is asking questions no one wants answered. Get it. Now, no one can stop him. Start up my car. Keep it hot. I'm coming out fast. From finding the truth. Don't lie to me. Academy Award winner Denzel Washington. Devil in a Blue Dress. Rated R. At theaters September 29th. I'll start, Will, and just ask... What is your history with Devil in a Blue Dress? What's your experience with it as a film? Uh, when did you first come to it? What are your thoughts on it? Um, uh, my well, I this is this is a, I guess like this is one of those movies that is in the the rare and exalted category of me of having seen in the theater with my dad. So I saw mm. this when it came out in '95. And I just like, I remember just like my dad was like, opened the paper and was like, hey, want to go see this movie? And I said, yes. And knowing very little about it other than it starred Denzel Washington and had kind of a, a 40s detective vibe to it. And, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it's one of, 
kind of movie that they just don't make anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, I, I, I was excited to uh, talk about it with you guys because, I mean, I put this movie at the nexus of like two kind of currents in, 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 in movie movie lore or history. And that would be like one, as the, as Denzember is all about, like the, the legendary run of movies that Denzel pulled off in the 90s. Yeah. But I think this one is, 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 is also like, you know, joins a current of the great like 90s neo-noir renaissance and and then particularly the work of director Carl Franklin and i think about this movie and franklin's debut one false move as being like very as they're both similar and different in interesting ways that i think makes for um like a you know like a, a nice comparison and double feature but i i think of carl franklin along with directors like john dahl and um, even the early Coen brothers, like Blood Simple, mm-hmm. I think of movies like, you know, The Last Seduction, Red Rock West, and Blood Simple, and then One False Move. But then Devil in a Blue Dress arrives as kind of the, it, it's, it is noir, but, it, but it, there, are, there are interesting divergences from like the classic noir protagonist and genre. I guess it's like, has a noir setting, but it's really more of a detective story. Because in Denzel as the main character, and in 90s Denzel as a leading man, he sort of it lacks a certain perversity of like for, as compared to like Bill Paxton in One False Move. Like there, there's yeah. I mean like the the movie works out pretty well for Easy Rollins. All things continue. All, all things considered, yes. <laughs> um, so he's just like essentially like I, I, when, we, when I was watching this the other night, like I conceive of I'm rewatching it. I conceive it. It's like it's in conversation with Chinatown in that it's a movie very much about like po- about Los Angeles. Well, Chinatown's pre-war LA. This is post-war right after World War II. And it deals with, you know, um, like strict, like, you know, uh, these nasty taboos and, our, and the violation of sort of transgressing certain lines of taboo in American culture and the corruption of LA. But more than anything, I just view this movie as like Chinatown, if Jake Gittes were essentially a decent person and not kind of a corrupt <laughs> piece of shit. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that's totally fair. It's, I mean, it's interesting the Chinatown comparison too, because to me, and, and I think, you know, like as I've read a little bit about what Carl Franklin was saying at the time that he was making it, I, I got a chance to check out the, the commentary track on the new uh, Criterion edition of this that came out just a couple years ago. Uh, it's very, very good. If you haven't listened to it, listeners, uh, seek it out. He and, and everyone else involved seem to be kind of approaching a noir like a classic noir without any interest in adopting any of the sort of like visual aesthetic indicators of a noir. It's, yeah. you know, it's very beautifully like kind of lens and colorful, the great talk Fujimoto uh, on, on the camera in this. And uh, it, it just doesn't really bother with any of that. And, and Franklin too, you know, in this commentary mentions, you know, we get a lot of comparisons to Chinatown. We get a lot of comparisons to uh, Howard Hawks is the big, the big sleep. You know, because this is very much sort of indebted to the Philip Marlowe detective stories as well. Yeah. Uh, but he was like, I, I didn't even see those movies until after we made this one. I had no reference or indicator of what those movies were like until we put this one together and got it got it out into theaters. Um, and I just find that fascinating that it's just like a guy making a really, really competent, I mean, really fantastic noir and just not really knowing much of that like kind of cinematic history. Yeah, that's interesting because, like, in, in rewatching it the other night, I mean, like, it, it's it has it has the trappings of a noir, but really, 
uh, like also on top of that, it's it's a really well observed period piece about post war yes. Los Angeles and about like the kind of economic and social conditions of like the post World War II black community, like the 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 Western migration from like an easy 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 Rollins in case from Texas to Los Angeles after the war. I found myself thinking about um, Boys in the Hood in terms of just like the color story of this film and like. Uh, you know obvious comparisons because we're in south central we're in compton and and those films take place there but also i think just like the richness of those neighborhoods and like really being devoted to like shooting in the spaces like rather than on sets i think just like made the film feel um so much more potent and i love that you bring up the intersection of those two currents and specifically talking about like denzel's legacy i have talked on this show before about the arc of his career in the 90s in particular being sort of like split into where in the early 90s he's sort of for lack of a better way of saying this he's kind of like this token of the meritocracy being like something that has fidelity and works right it's like look he's police officers he's lawyers he's like really competent um you know detectives or whatever and he's like this example of if you work hard it doesn't matter if you're black you can get to be you know at the highest levels of of society and then towards the back half of the decade into the aughts, particularly post 9-11, he's playing these characters that really frustrate that early part of his career and that really speak towards like the the precarious positions that black men in America find themselves. And what I love about Easy and Denzel playing him and where that falls in relation to those two paradigms is that Easy is kind of like sitting in both camps of that. He's, mm. you know, he has a certain amount of moral rectitude. Uh, not enough moral certain... rectitude not to fuck his best friend's sexually satisfied <laughs> yes. wife while he's too passed out in the other room. I mean... So, like, he's, he's, he's just essentially, like, what I like about him so much as a protagonist in... Uh, in this movie, and I actually haven't read the Walter Mosley books, but there's like you know like a dozen of them. But what I like about him as a as a film protagonist, or or sort of contra the noir, the the typical noir to protagonist, is that he is just essentially such a normal guy. Like yes. he's not particularly like like strong or ruthless or like I mean he's he's intelligent but not like a mastermind yeah. or anything. He's just a normal guy that it's really just wants to enjoy living in his house. And that's the other big thing about this movie where it sort of opens. It's like the plot kicks off because he gets laid off from his job in the aerospace industry yeah. or, or fired for you know standing up to the foreman. And it's sort of like once severed from like the connection to like a uh, sort of middle class industrial job, he is sort of drawn into the underworld of L.A. and all that entails. But um, I watched this with Catherine the other night and like, you know, the last scene where he's like, I just want to be on my porch drinking with Mm -hmm. my friend. And like the whole thing about paying, you know, owning his own home and home ownership and this kind of current in the movie about the kind of thwarted uh, passages to the middle class for the black community in Los Angeles and the, and, and the kind of uh, reapplication of the color line of, of like the segregated South that they were coming from. And like throughout the movie, like Easy's home is gets violated over and over again. Like every time yes. he comes home, <laughs> there's some there's fucking Tom Sizemore or Jennifer Beals just sitting in his living room. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 
it's like one of the great punchlines of the movie that literally every time he returns back to his home, say for that like first time where he gets to take a nap on his porch, there's always somebody there looking to like rough him up or get something from him. But also a very clear political statement on the part of Mosley and Franklin, yeah, like showing that yeah. like these spaces are not, pri- they're not, he yeah, there's can no own place a thing that's safe or still- private. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And uh, Carly, yeah. to your point about like, Denzel's legacy and how this kind of cuts against the traditional noir protagonist like in it because like in the 90s like Denzel and his position and sort of like the the roles he was offered or the way his career was going is that like as a leading man but also as like the most prominent black actor in America at the time there was like I I think like he his characters had to always possess like a certain pride and dignity and like a lot of this movie is about like him you know like enforcing like the boundaries of his pride against like a you know people basically stepping all over it whereas i think like a more traditional noir protagonist would allow the audience to feel some sort of hatred or revulsion or contempt yes. for them and, mm-hmm. and like a sort of inner perversity to their motivations that easy rollins doesn't have yes yeah. precisely well and what's compelling about that i think is that you know hearing franklin tell the story they were very careful about sort of towing that line between that perversion and making easy just kind of like a normal guy and a relatable protagonist. I think a lot of the kind of darker tendencies of the character come directly from the Mosley book, like him, you know, uh, fucking Coretta while Dupree's passed out in the other room is like something they pulled from the book. And Franklin had a lot of apprehension about it. Like he was like, I, we were worried that this scene was going to like boil over and make him too unlikable, that he were suddenly going to really? be I mean, hated. I, 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 to me, it instantly marks him as just sort of charming and relatable. <laughs> <laughs> right? right? Same. Especially how much sort of like, uh, you know, he's, he's able to, you know, keep his guard up and he's able to like, you know, have a, a certain level of discipline until he gets it in. And then all of a sudden it's like off to the races. Like it, it has to happen from that point. Yeah. The character, I think, I mean, the the very clear thing here is that, you know, Easy is a black man. And we're, you know, even in the 90s with some uh, kind of, you know, cultural wins for black Americans since the 1940s, uh, you know, racism still very much exists. We talk a lot on the show about how, you know, the, the Rodney King incident frames nearly everything that features black actors in it in some capacity in the 90s and especially in the first half here um and you're dealing with an audience that you know like you you have to kind of be careful with you have to worry about stereotypes you have to worry about people uh perceiving easy as a certain type of guy and and worried about trying to constantly kind of win the audience back as compared to, for instance, uh, Bill Paxton's character from One, F- One False Move, which is like yep. the perfect Bill Paxton role because throughout the first two thirds of the movie, he appears as like mostly a harmless goofus, but is actually hiding a deep undercurrent of evil. <laughs> like he's actually yes. a really evil guy. And yes. like the movie is about sort of revealing that as it goes on and like the darker it gets. Whereas like, you know, like Easy is thrown into a world where there is very, there's extreme darkness and evil in this movie. But his his essential goodness is just like too much for it to to really touch him. Yeah, and it does make sense then to your point that Denzel is playing him, right? Because he does kind of have that sheen of like having pride and being this sort of like sterling example of like what a, a black leading man in Hollywood Hollywood could be. Um, but I do appreciate that this film kind of go allows him to go places that he he hadn't yet gone in other films we talked um with 
good friend of the show, Jesse Hawken, about the Pelican Brief and how on that particular film, Denzel was vehement that he not have any sort of like sexual or romantic um, goings on with Julia Roberts because he knew that like for his fanhood, for his fandom, um, being with a, a white woman would be problematic. Um, and so the fact that he's like, he commits adultery in this movie um, and that he is um, there is some sort of sexual tension between Jennifer Beale's character who we find out later is um, mixed race um, that is also kind of skirting the line of things that he had not done previously in other films and also in this movie the relationship between him and Don Cheadle's character Mouse yep. you know presents another you know complicating factor to this like at the end of the movie where he's like can you still be friends with someone even if they do really evil things? And then the guy's like, well, your friends are all you got. You know, because yep. like, and it just like his sort of, you know, his, his childhood relationship with Mouse and then like him being sort of a wild card and also kind of a psychopath. Like, you know, yes. yeah, like, um, yeah, they're like, this is the beginning of like the complication of his, his leading man persona. So... Want the job? It depends. On what kind of job it is. I don't want to get mixed up in nothing. Hmm. Walk out the door in the morning, easy. You're mixed up in something. Only thing that matters is if you're mixed up to the top or not. I'm just looking for somebody. For a friend. Daphne Monet. <clears throat> Fiance of Todd Carter. She's been gone two weeks. It upset the poor man so much he stopped running for mayor. I never laid eyes on him. That's a shame. See, Daphne has a predilection for the company of Negroes. She likes jazz and pig's feet and dark meat. Know what I mean? Predilection? What do you want from me? What do you mean? What do you want me to do? Let's get a location on her. Mr. Carter wants to make up with her. $100. I pay in advance. All I got to do is tell you where she's at. That's right. And that's all? That's all. Uh, you could start tonight. What I really like about this role specifically and in Easy Rollins as a character is that, you know, what we're talking about, this kind of sort of dignified meritocratic persona that Denzel puts off and, and the ways it kind of interrogates that is that he has a considerable, uh, considerably more dynamicism, I feel like, to him in this film than he does in some of the other ones. Because where he starts is in a place of sort of uh, complacency, you know, like like all good protagonists do. But he has, you know, sort of made for himself this life. He has like a little piece of the pie. He's about to lose it. He's, you know, up against the ropes. Uh, but what he's looking for is just like another job where he can go and be disciplined and, you know, disrespected and and make the money he needs to keep his property. And over the course of the film, as he butts up against all of those institutions and realizes just sort of the inherent structural racism in all of them, that he'll never really be seen as an equal within them. Uh, he slowly, I don't want to call it radicalizing him, but like he, he slowly does kind of, you know, become more and more fiercely independent and decides to kind of stick up for himself and change his attitude towards that complacency. And, and just in terms of him standing up to um, Tom Sizemore's character, Albright, who is, you know... 
uh, Tom Sizemore is like you know in, in one of these uh, perfect villain roles for him, where you know mm. like uh, he got an extra ten thousand dollars for every N word he had to say in the movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but like the scene where he where he comes into his house with his goons or whatever, and he's like, "Easy, get me a whiskey," and he goes, "Liquors in the cabinet, get it yourself." You know, like of just being like, "This is my house. I'm not your fucking waiter." This is neither here nor there, but it, Sizemore is 30 years old in this movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> he looks like he's lived the hardest 30 years anyone has ever lived in their life. Like, What a guy. I, I, and I guess, you know, like, I mean, he, he looks like shit in a lot of movies, like very deliberately. Like, I, th- I think he kind of owns that as sort of like a character actor face. I think of like Natural Born Killers the year before this, yep. where he's just like sunken eyed and sweating for the entire thing. It's that bologna Jesus Christ. He was in diet. his 20s when the National Born Killers came out. Good yeah. God. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he's he's living hard. But I, I guess he apparently really too, is. like... That Jack he... Scagnetti lifestyle. Oh, God, yeah, right? <laughs> All that bologna stuck in his molars, just saving it for saying. later. Uh, but he, I guess, you know, he put on considerable weight for the role. Like, he really wanted to, like, kind of fuck himself up for it to make himself feel a little bit rougher. What a guy. Uh, and, he, and he does. Um, he... he by the way, does this film Strange Days and Heat all this year alone? Wow. That's a hell of a run. Wow. That's, yeah. a, that's a really strong fucking batting average for 1995. Insane. And I know that, you know, like at, at the time those movies were received in, you know, kind of mixed ways. They, they weren't necessarily all big hits and successes. Like Catherine Bigelow's film specifically was not one that I, I feel like has really come into favor until like the last like five or 10 years. But yeah, totally. But an incredible run from him. I think it, it's really special. And, and uh, we talk a lot about uh, about Sizemore on this podcast, obviously. He's in basically everything. He literally is. <laughs> um, and he's always good. Uh, but a little bit of background, I guess, talking more about Carl Franklin a little bit and, and just as a director. Will, you mentioned uh, One False Move, you know, which is kind of his big breakout after really cutting his teeth in the... Uh, Roger Corman stable of filmmakers for a little while does like a handful of like kind of B pictures for for Concord and Jonathan Demi produced uh, this one yes he did Mm -hmm. yeah so this is also I think you know we talk about all the kind of like uh, intersections of legacies and, and things happening here in the 90s one of the other ones that we should bring up is this thread of Demi as a filmmaker establishing himself enough to be kind of a guy who brings up these kind of upstarts during the era. You get him and Gary Getzman as an executive producer uh, giving us George Armitage's Miami Blues. Have you seen Miami Blues? Oh, yeah. Well? Oh, my God. Yeah. What a, what a fucking peak movie. Peak Baldwin. Peak Baldwin. It, incredible Baldwin performance. Uh, yeah. Just I love everything about that movie. But he does Armitage's. He gives us this film, a couple in between that are, you know, a, a little bit more minor. Um, but also after working with Hanks on Philadelphia, uh, gets him behind the camera to do that thing you do. So they're also the kind of producing partners on that one. Uh, but uh, like Franklin, it's just uh, like these are like like One False Move and Devil in a Blue Dress are probably just like most well-known movies. He, only, he did a couple other ones. He did another kind of thriller with Denzel called Out of Time that I haven't mm-hmm. seen. Yep. And then a movie with Morgan Friedman and Ashley Judd that I also shamefully have not seen. But mm-hmm. like recently in the 21st century, like Carl Franklin is a guy who has been eating off of prestige TV for like decades yep. now. And if you think about like he is he is he has been a director on like every huge like big budget hbo production or fx or like any of the kind of the big prestige tv shows of the last like 10 15 years carl franklin as a director has been all over that i mean you know kind of a kind of as a journeyman it's less of like a less of a personal feel because it's 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 episodic television but like you know his, his talent as a director is evident 
Yeah, absolutely. He, I mean, some of his credits, he uh, directed an episode of uh, The Pacific, the follow-up to Band of Brothers, uh, which I just watched recently. Not bad, especially uh, for following up one of those, you know, kind of grand epics of television. He did a bunch of stuff with David Fincher for Mindhunter and House of Cards, both. Um, just like, like you said, really just, uh, I think, owning that kind of avenue of prestige television right now. And, and his episodes are always pretty strong. It's interesting because like uh, uh, John Dahl uh, followed a similar trajectory, like the John mm-hmm. Dahl who did uh, Red Rock West and The Last Seduction, who had this like this like imprint on 90s noir in the, in the 21st century, in the 2000s, like he, he's done a lot of TV as well. Yeah, it is interesting the way all those kind of like neo-noir guys of this era just sort of went that avenue. I, I feel like, you know, if there's any evidence to a thing we talk about on the show a lot and, and what you mentioned at the beginning of this, well, that they just don't really make movies like this anymore and there aren't many avenues to doing this type of movie uh i think this is a, a prime example of or, or rather a proof of of that thesis that they have kind of shifted into television well i mean uh, all, all those easy rollins books are out there if there are any tv producers <laughs> listening because we got right yeah absolutely. There's a- endless material there to have fun with yeah there are 15 of those books by the way uh mosey just wrote the the last one in 2021 so he's like still cranking them out uh and listening to conversations with carl franklin they had every intention of doing more of these movies with Denzel as Easy Rollins, adapting at least the first handful of them, like the first like four or five, because um, they're all kind of like of a, a kind of coupling there. They all have colors in their names. They're like a little yellow dog. Yeah, Re- Red Death, I believe. Yeah, Red Death. Yeah. Um, and I guess the one that Denzel really wanted to do was White Butterfly. But Carl Franklin was pretty insistent on this one being sort of his origin story and uh, showing showing that, which I think makes this movie really unique in the noir genre, too, that it is effectively a guy who like he isn't a P.I. He's just some guy who's desperate for cash and needs to pay his mortgage, who uh, gets roped into this criminal underworld. What I like about this film and One False Move in sort of, you know, what we're talking about with Franklin is and and his kind of like manipulation of of traditional Hollywood cinematic genres. One False Move is, you know, for all intents and purposes, kind of like a police crime action thriller. Right. Um, but very much about a million other things. Um that don't typically get covered in in that genre. And similarly, this being a noir, but as we've been talking about, you know, Franklin not necessarily like being interested in like sticking to the sort of like visual trappings of that genre. What I like about both One False Move and um, Devil in a Blue Dress is that Franklin is operating within dominant structures of power in Hollywood. And he's using the language or at least sort of like operating within traditional genres of those structures of power but he's asserting a black perspective within those um within those genres and in doing so like i think using some of the traditional elements of those genres to kind of flip them on their head and i think specifically about like how inherent you know, institutional violence against violence against an underclass is in like a police action thriller or a noir. But it's kind of like background noise in those movies. It's not the focus. And he really brings that to the forefront and makes mm. that like a material part of the story we're watching. And I just appreciate when filmmakers are able 
to make films that are subversive, but do so using the language of like the dominant modes. And I think Carl Franklin in One False Move and Devil in a Blue Dress does that brilliantly. Yeah, absolutely. And like the the movies are are, are thematically linked, you know, going, returning to Chinatown, of which like the central and primal taboo is incest. Mm-hmm. And Carl Franklin's inversion of that, of like the central and primary t- dividing line in America is the color line and the central taboo is transgressions against that of a sexual nature. Mm-hmm. And like, yes. and, 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 and of like, you know, uh, mixed race, uh, you know, being mixed race or just like who, who gets to count as white and who doesn't. And like the transgressions Aggressions against that are like the central taboos explored in both Devil in a Blue Dress and One False Move. Yes. Yeah. And as Easy kind of like butts up against all of those institutions, uh, you know, we get things play out very compellingly over the course of the film. Like I, I think specifically of like the Malibu boardwalk scene, you know, and, and throughout oh, right, the yeah. film we're, we're constantly navigating these white spaces where Easy is just like totally uncomfortable and, and constantly realizing just sort of how conditional his liberties are and how conditional sort of like his ability to simply exist are um and that one to me is one that i mean certainly sticks out where he's just you know minding his own business a a, a white woman comes up to him and starts talking to him and then her her guy friends come out of a bar drunkenly and start threatening him there's that and then and then sizemore is like um sort of psychopathic sadistic rehearsal of like making the white guy like get on his knees in front of him like clearly getting off on it uh, as well, like, you know, when he shows up and like, let's just say diffuses the situation by escalating it <laughs> dramatically. Yes. He's an interesting corollary to Mouse, right? Because Mouse yeah. is also like hair trigger, like quite literally mm-hmm. kind of erratic, like kind of a psycho, as you said. But um, but a different he's he brings a different tenor to that performance. And I think because um, not only because he's he's black and he is a literal friend to easy their relationship is not as antagonizing but also that like what i appreciate about the character of mouse and we can talk about Cheadle in a second because he's fucking phenomenal yeah we'll, we'll get there for sure um but what i appreciate about mouse is that he is I don't want to say like, oh, he's like dedicated to a cause because that's like flat and stupid. But I do think that his like violence is um, is like impassioned and like a little bit about something. Whereas, you know, Tom it's about Sizemore his sense character- of like uh, it's, it's about his sense of perhaps like not misplaced loyalty in Easy, but perhaps like loyalty exaggerated beyond a point that Easy would be OK with. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly that. It's totally about the loyalty aspect of it. And I think one of the things that the movie is navigating often is just how less treacherous some of those spaces are, even when there's like violence and chaos, than the institutionalized ones. Like the car scene, well, for example. For sure. Well, like when when Easy gets picked up by the cops after Coretta is killed, first and foremost, we think about, and he goes into that interrogation room. And all these little details throughout the film, like, are, are pretty masterful. But in this one specifically, we see just like blood spatter, like on the walls of this interrogation room that he's like locked Jesus. away in. It's like, like there's, Buffalo there's Bill's no fucking well. Yeah, it is. And and he's just as equally trapped in it, right? Where it's like he knows, and Denzel plays that scene really well. It's just like a totally terrified guy that there's nobody there who's going to help him. Nobody there who saw him go in. And, and like nobody who who knows anything about his whereabouts, like he's stuck there 
save for the mercy of those cops deciding not to kill him. Yeah, and it's an, it's another thread in the movie uh, as well, but like uh, it's it's alluded to several times. But like Easy's service in World War II, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that he fought in the European theater, and then like you know came home, moved to Los Angeles from like the segregated South, only to find the reimposition of these like racial caste systems through the police and banks and things like that. But also the fact that like he's a World War II veteran. It's nineteen forty eight. Like he served with Patton or whatever. And like essentially he gets no respect for it. Like, you know, right. one of one of Sizemore's goons is like, Oh, you fought in Europe or whatever, but like it's just yeah, like that like his status and then like the like the cops push him around or whatever, like he gets no respect, but like also I mean, like, even for someone who's been under combat and, like, as he said, I've seen death before, like you could just get a sense of just like how utterly precarious his existence is. Yeah, and how he really cannot escape that violence. Like mm-hmm. He's come home, you know, he's ostensibly safe. And we were talking over and over again about like how his home is not safe, like walking on the street, he's not safe. And then I think about the sort of like, I don't want to say like, it is a humorous scene. You are a bit more relaxed, but the scene where Mouse is driving them to the cabin and they have Joppy in the back seat. And Denzel, as easy, is like trying to get information out of him. And uh, over the course of that conversation, they find out that Joppy is the one that killed Coretta. Mouse knows Coretta and he becomes incredibly upset and shoots out the back of the window at Joppy several times. And yet even in that contained space of like real violence happening, you are not as a viewer like worried for mm-hmm. Easy's safety. I was not like, oh fuck, he's gonna shoot Easy. Oh my god, something terrible's gonna happen. It's played for laughs. And that's very purposeful when you're contrasting it with these other scenes when Easy is running up against these institutions or even just out in public space and he is very much not safe and you feel that preca- you feel how precarious that that safety is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the novel and and Carl Franklin uh, too, in in his commentary, make a note of what you're talking about, Will, about uh, Easy's service in the military during the war, and you know, kind of bouncing off that idea that for a, a long portion of this, he has like trepidation about leaning into the kind of violent person that he was during the war, and it's one of the things sort of stopping him from like boiling over in a lot of points that almost kind of makes him. I don't know, makes him just sort of more impish in a lot of these positions. Like, I I know that uh, Franklin mentions that Denzel had like a little bit of trouble with the scene where Frank breaks into his house and he almost loses a fight, if not for Mouse coming in and like putting the gun to the back of his head because Denzel was insistent that he should be able to win the fight. And Franklin's explanation is like, you can win the fight. You're choosing not to because you don't want to hurt people anymore. Right. And I guess like there's an, an, another thread that like, you know, in, in his voiceover is like, you know, we fought for democracy and then we're coming home to this world in which like we're second class citizens of like the experiences of black soldiers who fought in the European theater in World War Two and like being even in occupied Europe experienced that coming from like the oftentimes the South experienced for the first time in their life, like what it was like to like uh, like, like a, a totally different like level of freedom. Um, in an occupied foreign country than they did before they left or inclusively when they came home as well. Completely. Uh, And, you know, like talking more about this, we've talked about the Sizemore scene already where he breaks into Easy's house with his heavies and, you know, like they 
lose any pretense of friendliness. I think this is actually like the first time that Sizemore like really boils over and he like drops that first N word and you realize like, oh, oh yeah. like this is not the same guy. I mean, he's the same guy, but like he, he's not even putting on the show anymore for me. Like he's actually pissed off and ready to, to intimidate me. And the fact that like that compared to the interrogation scene with the cops that it's juxtaposed with is happening in the open in broad daylight, you know, the same way that you get like the blood spatter on the wall in that scene in, in this scene in, in easy's home in the background, out the window, you can see a milkman pull up and just like make <laughs> a delivery to the house and just kind of like going about his business. And part of it is, you know, intimidating because you realize that life outside the, the walls of his house are normal. And here he is in this threatening situation, but also it feels more manageable. It feels actually like escapable compared to what's happening with the police. Right. I was going to ask, what did you guys make of the uh, the character, the, the sort of neighborhood character who does uh, un unsolicited yard work for people yeah. around Easy's Block? I was going to ask you about this too, because to me, this feels very much like a uh, like a literary contrivance, like that he's supposed to have some sort of like deeper meaning. I think of like you know, like the eyes and like great Gatsby or something on the sign and you're supposed to like, you know, seek meaning in it, but uh, it's not in the novel. Apparently it's a Carl Franklin original. It's a creation of the script. Interesting. I mean, I interpreted it as like the scene where, um, what's his name? Uh, like where Frank attacks him. Uh, where like, as he's walking up to his house, like uh, the, the, the neighborhood character knows that there's someone there and mm -hmm. like he keeps trying to like hassle him and he's like, don't bother me. Don't bother me. And he's like, easy. Someone's there. And like, that's what, like, you know, at the last second, he's able to, like, avert being stabbed or whatever. And I don't know. I mean, I, I just interpreted that character as, like, even the guy with a few screws loose is still sort of, like, part of the fabric of a community where people look after yes. each other. Yep. I think that's solidified in the last scene. 100%. When, like, he comes back, right? And some woman is like, hey, like, stay away from my tree. And Easy is like... That man took down like two of my apple trees or whatever. And he's like, hey, get out of here, guy. But it's like all sort of like in good in good fun. And you understand yeah. that this man is like very much like a fixture in like this particular neighborhood on the block. And that everyone kind of is like, oh, this freaking guy again. But that he is, to your point, like a, a an important part of the community. And that like that that those types of relationships um, exist in a community that is real and alive and uh, and actually like there to support people that like this sort of like atomized existence that we now think is normal um, is is not and that there are a range of relationships you have when you live in a neighborhood. You have people that you're really close with. Like, I'm going to call him Baines because we just watched Malcolm X, his, but that is not his name. His name in the movie is Odell. <laughs> yes. Uh, but but the, yes, the, guy, the guy goes to church on Sunday. The dude he's yeah, on his porch yeah. at the end of the movie. Yeah, he's the dude who converts Malcolm X in prison, right? He is. Yes, he we, is. And we literally okay. just watched that movie and I was like, what the fuck is he doing in here? Yeah. Al Albert Hall is the actor's name. Albert Hall, yes. Um, you know, you've got a relationship like the one Easy has with Albert Hall's character. They're very close. They confide in each other. They hang out. They drink. They're sitting on the porch. And then you have other relationships like the guy that comes and cuts down his trees. And he's like, you know, okay, buddy, like, get out of here. But they're all part of, you know, what makes that community alive and actually, like, functional. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I think like to your point, Will, it's it's a nuisance until it isn't, right? That he's like part of the reason that Frank doesn't completely get the upper hand on him when he comes to his house to try to fight him. And for a little while, you know, it sort of is like meant to be this uh, kind of contrast with all the other woes and and things that Easy is experiencing outside of his home. Then he has to come home and deal with this shit. But by the end, there's almost this relief that it's like, I forgot all about all the other bullshit. And now like this guy is my biggest problem. Like just some guy who wants right. to yeah. cut down my trees unsolicited and, and I can live with that. And yeah, like I guess it's just like in, in, in the, the Watts or Compton that this movie, you know, portrays is just this interesting moment of like the post-war Los Angeles because like Los Angeles for like major American cities did not become like a, it exploded in population and didn't really become the LA that we know until after World War II. Mm -hmm. And it was because from like a lot of it was based on like a huge amount of uh, a migration from of both black and white people from the south to Los Angeles. And like in the creation of this like megaopolis involved like as I said like not with like official segregation but it involved like particularly in the LAPD's recruitment of white men with military experience from the south mm -hmm. to kind of like create a kind of almost like a soft military occupation and like these these neighborhoods and like the black neighborhoods are kind of like the safe zone or safe as you can possibly get but as you talked about like in the Malibu scene it's like you 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 go out of that and you feel that like you know you're in you're in hostile territory yeah, and it happens all the time, and we hear it in Easy's voiceover, right? When he's driving uh, Jennifer Beals to Laurel, uh, oh, yeah, Laurel Canyon, yeah. and like she's asking he's like, him, "Yeah, like, I got a white woman in my car. I'm in a white neighborhood. Like, I'm, I'm <laughs> what do you say? Like, I'm, I'm not stupid. I'm suicidal or something." Right? He's, yes. he's like, "I'm not scared. I'm stupid or something like yeah, that." Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, like I mean, you know, he he realizes immediately, like this is a, a space that I'm. I'm where I'm transgressing just by existing here, you know, at night with a white woman in my car, et cetera. And I, I think, you know, alongside sort of the precarity that we see from easy and like how, how quickly he can lose his slice of that and, and his own house and, and all of that. Like we see it happen in the neighborhood as well. There's a like very brief scene, but I think it's a really powerful one where the woman has like, her her car all packed up with her kids and she's like we're getting out of here like it's too heavy for us like we just we can't manage out here anymore and you just see yeah yeah it's just how too fast for, for me them. and yeah like and sort of like as a plot device that he's he's tasked with finding like the missing mistress of the mayoral candidate played by terry kinney and like it's the femme fatale of the movie is jennifer beals and like from the beginning like the the, the sort of pi assignment he's tasked with is finding a white woman who's known to frequent like the black community, and that's why Sizemore is reaching out to him because he has connections or like he can he can blend in. He's 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 black, so he can be in ask those questions in like for instance the kind of uh, you know like the sort of secret illicit nightclub jazz club that they go to. But like mm -hmm. yeah, from the beginning, that's an, an inherently unstable proposition for Easy is that like he's a black guy tasked with finding what we think at the time is a white woman, but then by the end of the movie, what we learn is someone who merely can pass for being white and like the the real like you know the mystery of the movie is untangling that yeah but she can't pass enough right yeah yeah and like you know i mean it, like I, I think when he there's a funny line where he first walks into the jazz club and he asks the bouncer or whatever where the white women at, and that was yes. <laughs> like <laughs> but like just asking that question it puts him it puts him kind of on the outs with like uh, obviously the white community at large but also like you know uh, like his own friends and neighbors because like they're wondering like well, you know, why why are you so interested in this white this rich white lady easy yeah and interestingly, too, I guess that's touched on a little bit more in some of the subsequent 
Walter Mosley novels that as he becomes like more of this kind of hardened and professional PI helping the white community, he starts to become more of a pariah in the black community. And you kind of see inklings of it happen in the film where, you know, I mean, he is tied to at least implicated in Coretta's death. And then at the end too, like also very much like partly responsible and like an accomplice to Joppy's murder as well, along mm-hmm. with these criminals. And he goes and talks with Terry Kinney's character and is like, I've got a problem. He's like, oh yeah, don't worry about it. Like the cops aren't going to bother you. And like part of that rests on, you know, historically the fact that like black on black crime would just like go totally uninvestigated or, or dropped by the LAPD and that they're not really concerned about it. And so, you know, while they turn a blind eye, obviously his community around him is noticing the deaths and noticing his how, how proximate he is to them and starting to get suspicious and then eventually just kind of cast him out. Right. Hello, Mr. Rollins. Hello, Miss Monet. I don't know if I should think of you as a friend of Coretta's or as a private dick. <laughs> I ain't no detective. And I was just hired by a fella that uh, works for Todd Carter. You know, I had to pay Coretta not to tell you where I was. Oh, she got you too. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely gave me the wrong address. Where'd she say I was? Said you was out in Watts over to the Skylar Arms Apartments with a fella named Frank Green. Mm-hmm. And what else did she tell you about me? I don't know. What else is there to tell? Nothing. I make no apology for my feelings for Frank. He's very dear to me, and that's that. Bourbon? Please, straight up. So how well did you know Coretta? She was a very close friend. So maybe you know why she got killed? Why would I know that? Said she was a very close friend. She knew about you and Frank. Maybe somebody wanted to keep that secret. Mr. Rollins, if you're thinking... Easy. You can call me easy. Easy if you're thinking that Frank had anything to do with Coretta's death, and obviously you don't know very much about him. Frank doesn't go around beating people up. He prefers to use a knife as his weapon. And what do you prefer to use as your weapon? Why don't you search me and find out? Can we talk a little bit about the Terry Kinney character and the Maury Chaikin character, the the two political candidates running for uh, is, is it governor or mayor in this? It's mayor. Mayor, mayor of Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know it's the classic American. Uh, it's a classic quandary of American democracy. Like, who do you vote for? The guy who's covering up his a love affair with a mistress or the pedophile? <laughs> yeah. These are our options. <laughs> well, and what I find compelling about those two characters is like they're kind of uh, competing sort of facades that they put on is that at first at least the the pe- the pedophile is much friendlier to easy yeah he's a progressive reformer he's a, a friend of the negro <laughs> as he says he is right yeah and, and he's giving him high fives in his parade yeah he's shaking hands absolutely and he's like he's even adopted a young latino boy as his own <laughs> he has <laughs> philanthropy right he's supporting you know the minorities in in the city uh but yeah i mean at first like he gives this kind of 
he, he sort of like weaponizes empathy, like like we see so many you know progressives do in in our day as well, and kind of gets under easy skin a little bit just by seeming supportive and seeming like he's like you know together and and doing everything kind of above board. Um, whereas the other guy, who's more kind of like outright and overt in his intentions, he's dropped out of the mayoral race at this point because of controversy, but. Uh, when Easy is trying to like kind of hustle him, you know, like he wants to get money from him in order to find Jennifer Beals. Uh, the first thing out of his mouth is, by the way, like the chief of police, he like eats at my house regularly, so like I can make things a problem for you if I really want to. Right, and I guess it's like the the contrast between like these two figures of like you know powerful political evil because obviously the the Maury Chaikin character is like really I mean he's the one who's hired Tom Sizemore like he's the arch villain of this movie mm-hmm. and right. like you know like uh, like the the murder takes place because over like you know blackmail material of like photographs of him you know uh, interfering with a young boy uh, but like you know the Terry Kinney character is also like <laughs> deeply evil and like his kiss off to Jennifer bills at the end and the fact that he needs to tell easy after he's witnessed his incredibly callous like kiss off yep. to her is to, to, is to say to easy to reassure easy not jennifer bills to say you know i really do actually love her but you know she's you know part creole so i guess there's it can't go anywhere or yeah. i can't let anyone know about it i love that line so much too because from kenny's perspective he's like absolving himself and trying to like yeah. rectify that like perspective and like how how easy sees him by being like, I, I do love her, you know, like I'm a good guy, but from easy's angle and like having just witnessed this, like we know that that actually just makes things so much worse. He loves power and influence more. Like that's what it boils down to. He loves her. Sure. But that's not, uh, he's not willing to give up his position to, to be with her. Total aside. I have to ask both of you. And I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Did either of you ever watch Nero Wolf? No. Slash, do you know what it is? No, I don't don't think so. (laughs) Okay. No, I'm not. So it was this like short-lived, I I literally think it was like one or two seasons, um, detective show on in like, I want to say the early aughts, like maybe like 2000, 2001. Um, And it takes place, um, I think like sometime around, it's like a 50s period um, drama Mm -hmm. series, but- the guy who plays the pedophile in this movie is Nero Wolf, who is this sort of like large looming figure behind uh, this frontman detective who like solves a bunch of crimes for him. Okay. And like I watched that because like I was a weird kid and I was interested in that show. But that's the only other thing I've seen this actor in. So and wait, I was Maury like, Chaikin was Nero Wolf. He was yes. a detective in that. Okay. Well, I was he was bring like up- the he was like the the funder of this like detective like ring that this guy had, oh, okay. and then another guy was like the front man of of the of the actual detective work. So Jaken was like the Charlie, like in Charlie's Angels. Yes. Okay. He was. He was. Well, the I, I was going to bring up the fact that Jaken uh, uh, plays a pedophile in this movie. I'm fairly certain he also plays a pedophile in the Sean Connery, Catherine Zeta-Jones vehicle, Entrapment. Oh boy! And Wait, what? He also portrayed. Yes, he is in it. He played. He played a pedophile in Entrapment, or let's just say someone who is highly pedophile coded in that movie, and <laughs> and and portrayed the Harvey Weinstein character on Entourage. So oh no! Murray Chicken is okay, not quite a CV. This actually, like retroactively, makes me understand his casting in Nero Wolf because. 
Nero Wolf is like this eccentric billionaire who like has this guy that does detective work for him and he's always sort of like sort of like shrouded in shadows and he's a pedophile he might be honestly (laughs) now i'm rethinking it but that that makes a lot of sense anyway sorry i just it's a weird like aberration of early aughts tv and it made me think of I mean, it sucks yeah. to be like typecast oh, oh, I just as the, this guy. He's the guy in Dances with Wolves who blows his brains out after sending Kevin Costner into the frontier. Oh shit! I was sorry. I was just, I was just looking at his IMDb because I'm trying to Wait, remember if he played he a really? pedophile in any other movie. Yeah, <laughs> Maury Chaykin pedophile in the Google search Maury bar. Chaykin pedophile. <laughs> Maury Chaykin eccentric, insane yeah. weirdo. Uh, I mean, he, he was about- in a lot of movies in the '90s. Yeah, he does a great job in this film too. By the way, he's only in that one scene, but there's something oh, about so, him that's so scary. Yeah. yeah, so so scary, really wormy, but just like so like soft spoken about it too. Like I was I was watching it and I was like, this guy is giving me some like D'Onofrio vibes, but like D'Onofrio would do this bigger. Oh yeah, yeah. And another thing I like about that scene is because like he's basically forced into the car with a guy who's like his friend and wants to help him. <laughs> and then as right. soon as like you know uh, like the business like he tells him what he wants him to do or whatever, Easy's like, yeah, I'll just get out here and they're in like the fucking dead zone they're in the middle of nowhere yeah. in los angeles yes. he's miles away from watts and he's just like yeah i'll just get out here uh because like you know, his adopted son is in the car and he's like oh please let, let me give you cab fare at least and he won't even take money from him because he's like, i'm not owing this guy anything yeah i do not want not even let him give me to give me a ride person. home i don't want anything to do with this guy <laughs> He's got good. He's got good instincts. Easy. We do know that about he, him. He does, and I. I think it. You know, it pays off when he finally gets the chance to meet Terry Kinney's character for the first time too. And it's like the moment in the voiceover too, where he says like, "Okay, now I have decided. Like, I, I know what I need to do. Like, I need to kind of like get hard, you know, and and toughen up a little bit here." And by the time he gets there, uh, you know, Kinney levels those threats at him, where he's like, "Everybody in government, everybody in the police, like." They eat at my house. Like I can make things, you know. Like like I, I know all these people, and Easy's response is, "That's good, Mister Carter. They can help us find your, I find love your that girlfriend." Line. Yes, yes, that's <laughs> I great. love that line. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just as he slowly kind of like calluses over and kind of toughens up a little bit, like when he goes to poor Joppy's bar and starts beating the shit out of the marble. Uh, that that killed me when he destroyed that beautiful marble <laughs> marble bar top. <laughs> I it was dying. Joppy too. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, well, let's be honest. Joppy had it coming. His beautiful marble <laughs> he did, bar. He certainly right. did. And if you didn't want him dead, you shouldn't have left him with Mouse. Like that's just uh, <laughs> yeah. that's just a, well, a I mean, known a known. big part. A big part about Easy toughening up is making the call to Houston to get Mouse <laughs> to yes. get Mouse to come out to the neighborhood. Yes. And I just Surely. like. I'm just looking at my notes here, and I just the only note I have for this is we love Mouse, don't we, folks? But like, yeah, <laughs> and I love the character because he's like, you know, Don Cheadle is like a small guy, Mouse, but I just I love he's like, you know, like like Joe Pesci in a movie, like the guy who's just like this spark plug. He's just like the small guy, but like the guy that like the, a guy who's like five foot five, but everyone is scared of is like the scariest yeah. dude on the planet. Yes, yes the scene that <laughs> that that is most evident in is when they go to see Junior. Um, the guy that smokes the Mexican the, the Zapatas, the Zapatas, yeah. yeah. 
And Junior is massive. This huge guy. He's, he's a bouncer. In, he's in a white theater. He's like, you know, half like stumbling out of the uh, out of his house. And he's got this crazy fucked up mouth. And he looks at Denzel, someone who is a more formidable figure. You know, he's pretty buff. He's tall, whatever. And he's like not paying him any mind. He's like, get the fuck out of here, dude. Like, I don't want to talk to you. And Mouse just sort of like leans in the doorway. And he's, <laughs> and he's like, like, yeah. Hey, hey, man. Hey, what's going on? And Junior's like, hey, Mouse, come on in. Why don't you guys have a yeah, drink? Because uh, Junior knows down. him from Texas. Like, he knows his reputation. Like, Yes, it's so it's so good. There's there's a lot going on there. I mean, I just want to say, I wish that had, this had been the first Cheadle performance I had ever seen because he's so infinitely likable and he's so charismatic and just, like, steals every scene that he's in. And, like, for a while, I don't think I liked Cheadle. Like, as a kid, I was like, who's this guy? Whatever. But I love him in this movie. Oh, yeah. He's great. I'm trying to think of the... I guess it had to be Boogie Nights for me. I mean, that was the mm. first movie that I really noticed on Cheadle. It was, like, Boogie yeah. Nights and Out of Sight, I think, were like that. That was the yeah, Cheadle... Yeah, Out of Sight, yeah. The Cheadle arrival for me with, with those two movies. Yeah. But, yeah, because I think when I saw this movie in the theater, like, I was not aware of him as an actor. I was just like, all I knew right. was Denzel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I came to Cheadle probably with Out of Sight as well and the Oceans movies where yeah. he's doing that awful Cockney that accent. You know, <laughs> it's like Barney he's, Rubble, he's... mate. Barney Rubble. <laughs> a pinch. Trouble. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's not he's not great in those movies. I mean, he's he's charismatic and entertaining uh, like he always is. Fun. But he's a, you know, it's, <laughs> the Oceans movies are just yeah, they're just about having a good time with your boys <laughs> doing a totally. bad accent. It's fine. <laughs> everyone's allowed to you know get a, a Soderbergh gig and just like go for broken like that's that's a <laughs> yeah. great right of of every kind of character actor of this era uh but I mean talking about Cheadle more directly here it's weird in a, a month-long celebration of Denzel Washington and talking about this movie to say that Denzel maybe gives the second best performance in it after Cheadle but he's I mean, it's kind of remarkable just how much more he brings to the movie at the point that he's introduced to it. Well, I mean, like, it's such a good plot device because, like, you know, when when after Tom Sizemore violates his house too badly, he's like, he likes surprises. Well, I got one for him. I'm calling Mouse up. But then we don't see Mouse for about, like, 20, 30 minutes. Like, it takes a while mm -hmm. for Mouse to show up. And then when he does, it's, like, intervene to save his life because he's just like, he's like, hey, you want me to shoot this guy? It's like, no, no, okay. It's, it's all right. But I mean, I think it comes back to like, you know, it's the character actor that's always going to get that wild card, you know, like the steal, steal the movie. Whereas, you know, like Denzel, it's harder as a leading man, especially when you're playing off a guy like Cheadle, because, you know, like the character is just so much more of a, you know, it's just the character is dynamite with, with Mouse. And, he, and also like he's there for both kind of like menace, but also a great deal of comic relief as well. And it just his introduction to the movie really uh, it's like it, it's, a, it's a dividing line between the first and second half of the movie. Yeah. I had read that Walter Mosley wrote an early draft of uh, a screenplay for Devil in the Blue Dress trying to get it made in Hollywood and had combined these two characters and made Easy and Mouse the same guy uh, to try to give him like a little bit more edge. And uh, I think rightfully it, it, it yeah. didn't catch. It didn't land as much as having Mouse be like a guy who shows up halfway through the movie. Can you picture Easy being like, uh, the girl said she'd give us seven thousand dollars and then like having that response of oh my god oh my god oh my goodness and he just kept saying that over and over again and i was like i'm like, obsessed 
it, it wouldn't work with Denzel because like you can't have him him specifically or like most leading men you can't root for them the whole movie and then have a scene where they just murder someone because it's easier than tying them up yeah <laughs> no completely and I mean that live wire act comparing him to Pesci you know like in in something like a casino or a Goodfellas is a, I think a, a perfect and apt comparison that that very first introduction where he saves Easy's ass from Frank and then the interrogation and then just shoots Frank. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, the funniest part of it, too, is that he's got the pistol in his hand and he holsters that pistol and then pulls out the smaller one. <laughs> yeah. You know? just wanted to make a point shooting him in the arm where it was like, I think the first one was like a Webley revolver that would have fucking put like a tennis ball sized hole in the yes. in poor Frank. Yeah, yeah. truly. But it's like it's that's the so... one he blows away Sizemore with at the end, and it's like so yes. satisfying when it's like, boom, he just gets hit in the chest and then like crawls around outside like a dog. That was such a good sequence. That like thirty seconds of Sizemore getting shot and then like dying yeah. in the gravel. I loved that. That's it's, the, it's always you know, satisfying when like uh, like uh, like like a really repellent villain in a movie gets shot, but it's even more satisfying when they're not dead. And yes. like, mm-hmm. <laughs> sputtering and crawling around like a Completely. roach. After we seeing their it, chest explode. Yeah. Like. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you get two kinds of like really satisfying villain deaths. You get like Travolta getting knocked out of a train car by a nuke, you know, and just immediately <laughs> yeah. off. Yeah. And then you've got the like, you know, classic Hollywood like falling all over the place, kind of sputtering and, and you know, dying slowly in the dirt, which I, I also find equally satisfying. It sure is. Yeah, Franklin does a, a pretty cool thing stylistically here with Sizemore's death, too, that he also did with Billy Bob Thornton's uh, death oh, yeah. in, in uh, One False Move, where he silences everything in the sound mix, and in both cases, they're kind of, like, out in, like, the backwoods of nowhere, and so you yeah. hear, like... The bird song you hear like the the crickets and you hear like all the kind of like ambient, ambient noise of outside yeah. uh and he like slowly just like fades all of it out in a way as this person dies and hearing franklin talk about it he mentions that in his mind and the way he wanted to communicate it was to sort of like give a measure to the satisfaction we might feel when a villain dies by yeah. showing that like nature seems to kind of stop and slow down for a moment to observe the passing of one of its own, even if they're an <laughs> evil guy. I like that. And I guess I was just thinking of like as 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 gross and evil as Tom Sizemore is in Devil in a Blue Dress, none of the villains in this movie come close to how fucking uh, how fucking scary and d- d- appalling um, uh, Billy Bob Thornton and Michael Beach are in One False Move. Oh, no. They oh are God. so scary. They are like and Billy Bob Thornton is just disgusting. Like he's disgusting. just awful. But Michael Beach, Michael Beach is that that guy with like he's like the college educated killer. Yeah, and he puts those pillowcases over. He ties those people up and puts pillowcases the pillowcases over their head yep. before stabbing them to death. Oh my god! One false move is like uh, even Devil Devil in Blue Dress is like it's way more like com- mainstream, commercially accessible because it's got a big leading man. Mm-hmm. And despite the darker elements of it, it is essentially like a happy ending. You right, know, easy on his front porch having fun. One false move is just pure darkness. It's just pitch black. Yeah. 
and Michael Beach in particular, I think, contrasted with like he's so good looking in that film. Yeah, and and Billy Bob Billy is so Bob repulsive. Thornton. Yeah, he's repulsive. He's so disgusting. And they are both they are both as you're saying like equally horrifying, but in very different ways. And Michael Beach is just like you know, he's beautiful, and he is just like doing the most horrific fucking shit you can think of. That movie, like. Yeah, that's a gem. Because uh, yeah. yeah, I just I just watched one false move like slightly before uh, this because I knew I was coming on. And I I just got it on Blu-ray, so I was like, yeah, time to time to crack the pack on this one. But the scene <laughs> where they get pulled over after going to that gas station. Oh man! And like they almost like uh, what's her name, Cinda Williams, like almost talks her way out of it. And then he's just like the the cop is just like, all right, well you know like I I didn't really mean to pull you over, but like you guys have a good night. And then Billy Bob just goes, they're almost out of it, and he goes. Why the fuck did you pull us over then? You're just like, oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> he can't not. He's just like yeah. that kind of guy throughout the entire movie. Like he has to. Yeah. He's just, he's a just human like animus. Disaster. Yeah. And like, I mean, I feel like Mouse is sort of a, a part of that kind of legacy, but he's not nearly as evil. Like we said, he has these kind of character traits to him that are positive he has psychopathic he's, tendencies but they're like they're, they're wedded to like uh to goodness yes. <laughs> in a ways, yeah absolutely yes. and, and i th- good i don't know <laughs> right and i think that that you know scene where they interrogate frank is evidence of that where you know billy bob is just like looking for chaos and trying to like Ill- elicit conflict out of every moment that he can whereas mouse is like I wasn't going to kill him. Like, I just wanted to make a point. Like, I, I, I <laughs> yeah. even, like, I, I got my toolbox out. Like, I, I got my, my smaller like, more, gun. Yeah. Yeah. My more precise tools for this kind of thing. <laughs> my, and, my Derringer for interrogations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, like, a lot of the violence that he exacts on people gets played for laughs. Like, I mean, it, it's a delicate balance that they strike with the Joppy murder, too, at the end, where he's like, you know, you told me not to shoot him. I didn't shoot him. I just, I just <laughs> yes. choked him a little bit. <laughs> I think though I just scene... I just strangled him to death with my bare hands. What do you want from me? <laughs> and, uh, but then he's like, look, because like he's the one who saves Denzel's life again at the end. He's the one who kills Sizemore, the bad guy. But he's like, look, if I didn't kill this guy, like I wouldn't have had time to come and save your save your life. So you mm-hmm. know, you do he's... the math on whether it was good or bad. Yeah, he's basically saying like you don't like these methods, but like they are necessary whether you like them or not. Yeah. You know? Um, I think a really important scene that asserts Mouse's goodness, if we're talking about that, and also a scene that I just fucking adored, is when they went to see Dupree, um, Coretta's uh, widower. Who, oh, right, where the scene where he gets drunk and there points a gun at him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, but yeah. But before that, they're having this conversation, and what I love about this scene is that it's different from a lot of the other interactions that they have in the film with um, people that they are trying to get information from, including other black people. It is like immediately clear that these people know each other and have known each other for a really long time. Dupree invites them in, offers them pig's tails. He's cooking up really good food and like Mouse is happy to see him. They're sitting and drinking, you know, like malt liquor and, and eating this like delicious meat. And, um, and they're just like, having a conversation and the actor that plays Dupree is so stunning in this scene. He is like, he has like maybe like four lines, but he is completely overcome with grief. And just, it is so clear how much he loves this woman. And he's sitting across from the man who cucked him. He has no idea. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just so tragic and so beautiful. And yet 
I think there's also like a tenderness between the three of them. Like they're having conversation and it's just like it's compl- it's devoid of antagonism, which is completely yeah, Carly, different from the others. I totally been like thinking back about that scene. Like it, it, it is so heartbreaking because Dupree is like, man, like well, how could anyone kill her like that? Like, you know, how could, how could anyone like she never had a bad word for anyone. But then there is a, there is a kind of uh, a dark humor to it as well, because presumably they all know each other. And I'm assuming in this movie, Mouse knows about Coretta and probably knows about what Easy and Coretta's little tryst. And, right. then, and yes. then like uh, du- Dupree is talking about how like she fought off her attacker. My baby fought. She wouldn't have no one else but me yeah. <laughs> and the mouse just goes drink up me. buddy drink up and he just feels, yeah. he feels like a milk glass with bourbon like and he's just yes. like yeah yes. okay no he knows exactly what he needs and i, I mean oh. it, it feels clear that like the easy and coretta situation is like probably not the first time that coretta has strayed she seems you know no like, I, I, would to- not, I, would say, I would not say so uh well she says she's like i mean we get the very clear picture that she is not sexually satisfied by dupree right. she says like he yeah. fell asleep on top of me basically like <laughs> sorry like i get well, to I mean, fuck like- you denzel that scene is so funny because like he like he carries Dupree home who's like a big guy and he's like oh god he's heavy and then like she's just like well you need anything else as long as you're here it's like sort of like you carried my drunk husband home so uh, you know the, the door prize is having sex with me while he's passed yeah. out in the other room <laughs> yes yeah I mean it's funny because like when they the way she navigates that scene you can see that it's like it's both like oh you did something nice for me and also like you're here and available and like I'm unsatisfied and he's Denzel but, for Christ's sake he's Denzel you got him back Back to your house. Does it really matter if your husband's there? It no, really doesn't. It does not matter. I said the exact same thing to Aaron. I was like, no offense if you were asleep and Denzel was in the room with me, like we'd be having sex. That's yeah, just going to happen. <laughs> well, but like, you know, the other thing about it too, though, is what Denzel knows about his his personal brand in a metatextual sense, which is like he gets her kind of jealous because she thinks he's interested in a white girl. And then she's like, well, she's asleep right now. So like... <laughs> You know, like and, what, what else in are you that scene do? Where, where they're having sex? Uh, she gets him like totally sprung. She gets him totally worked up, and then like, and then like as he as he's you know about to about to dive, you know, go go down the the slope of the roller coaster. She's just like, okay, so who's this Daphne you've been asking questions about? Yeah. <laughs> she elicits the information. <laughs> he's like, come on, baby, I'm almost there. <laughs> yeah, the the blue balls are pretty insane in that. I, but. I love her in that scene. I think it's really uh really remarkable that like she is someone who can thwart him so easily and like manipulate him in a way that no one else in the movie can. For sure, um, we should talk about Denzel and his wife beater in the movie. Yes, um, his A shirt is what it's called technically very good his his a shirt but throughout the film like we see other members of society obviously kind of more well to do and and dressed in things that are like a little bit more i don't even know what like fancy i guess more formal even even mouse is somebody who like kind of dresses to the nines and it's very clear that like he doesn't really get his hands dirty the scene where he goes to jennifer beals's hotel room she's like waiting for him and what i assume was like a cost you know like the costume maybe like then he's like okay change out of that house coat and like in the yes. 1940s just to like <laughs> hang out in a fucking hotel room you had to have like a formal attire this is my this is my formal indoor suit you know she's wearing a fucking brooch on her yeah. house coat. yeah she's yeah wearing a brooch and she's in like high heel like night slippers right but throughout the film, Denzel's just in his A shirt and like his uh, his jacket, like from the factory. Like he's in workwear for most of the film. Like he he doesn't really start donning like the suits until he goes and sees Terry Kinney 
Um, and then, I mean, that's really about it. But throughout, like, he's just in this kind of more like work. Carly, did I, did I see that you just surfaced the review of this movie from when it came out that was just like pure thirst for Denzel in the, the age? Yes. yes. It's so good. <laughs> I found a Washington Post article from 1995 written by um, Robin Given, who is a fashion editor now. She's been doing it for for decades. And she wrote this piece. It's called Hunk in a White Shirt. And she spends the entire piece talking about Denzel Washington in this A shirt. But the thing that I love about the piece is she doesn't just talk about how hot he is. She has a, a, a couple of really great paragraphs where her thirst is just palpable. Um, but she talks about the sort of like working man's uh, attire that that a shirt represents and that there's this sort of like reputation of it being a shirt that uh, a man who roughs up women it's where the term wife beater comes from wears but that in this movie it is worn by a man who is a proud working class you know honest good blue collar guy who comes home at the end of the day and just like wants a beer and wants to sit on his porch and she sort of asserts that this is um this is reaffirming the the fidelity and the the pride in this garment and that um and that denzel wearing it in this film is effective in doing so yeah because you know i mean like it it is sort of shorthand for if not uh, domestic abuse then um sleazy lower class um, piece of shit but i guess the question is are you wearing a wife peter or an a shirt is do you look like denzel washington or not that's correct Yep. Do your arms do that? Like, what? <laughs> and when he's wearing it with the suspenders, you're just like, holy fuck. Yeah, I mean, he looks incredible. His in it. pecs, like, I think another thing, I uh, I tend to talk a lot about clothes on on our show, so I just permit me for one moment. Carly's but, fashion corner. <laughs> well, clothes are I, a huge part of movies. They're yeah, a huge absolutely. part of movies. I think another thing that's really important in him wearing that shirt, you'll notice it is never sullied. It is yes, because if you've got stains on it, that's white. how you know that you're a domestic abuser. Yes, that's right. No, literally, yep. yes. It's that always is, clean. That is a cinematic shorthand, and like it's also a signal to the audience that this person is not just unkempt physically, but they are unkempt morally. And here, I mean, it is like as white as Denzel's teeth, and on top of it, um, Sharon Davis, the the costume designer for this movie, who did. Um, that other film that you mentioned out of time and also Ray and dream girls. She's just like an incredible um, mm. fixture in Hollywood. This was her first, she had done TV before this and this was her first um, film. And Carl Franklin was really intent on bringing up um, a black female costume designer for this particular film. She talks about, she's like, I didn't watch other movies from the 40s and 50s because that was not going to help me here. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, similar to Carl Franklin, like not really like seeing the big sleep until after making this movie. Mm-hmm. Well, it's all, I mean, it's it's white people in those films, right? So it's not going to be what someone in 1948 Compton was wearing. So she talks about going around to people's houses in the neighborhood and looking at their family photo albums. And that is how she designed the costumes for a large portion of the film, which I just, I love that. And she was like, this shirt was in every single photo I looked at. And another piece of trivia that I just have to share that I thought was really funny was she had tried on a bunch of um, a bunch of shirts similar to the one that he wears that were custom made for Denzel, like 15 or 16, she says. 
None of them worked. The one that she ended up going with is a shirt she found at Saks that was recommended to her by none other than Donald Sutherland. <laughs> wow. Okay. Who was like, oh, you're looking for a nice undershirt? Go get, go get this shirt. It's like Rating some the Smith Sutherland brand. cabinet. I was like, okay, Donald Sutherland. It's just Sutherland like, Private Reserve. That's right. Think about it. Like Donald Sutherland. Now I'm Sutherland, just imagining what Donald Sutherland would look like wearing a wife beater. And it's actually Well, I couldn't disturbing. help but think about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's a little too pasty for it, I feel like, to He's really pull it off the way. He's a little too skinny. He looks of a bean pole. Yeah. But don't you think it's kind of cool that Donald Sutherland is responsible for this, like, incredibly iconic look of this, like, very, uh, that like, is That is an excellent character. piece of, uh, of ephemera about this movie. That's I love fantastic. it. It's up there now in my favorite Donald Sutherland things that he's ever done, along with, like, <laughs> cloud busting by Kate Bush, you know? <laughs> so, no, I think that's awesome. Just... Uh, Really quickly, because I want to read a little bit of that given uh, review. I just have a paragraph here that you pulled out, Carly, where uh, it's written, the camera allows us to take him in, rippling biceps, an army tattoo etched on his upper arm. A close-fitting white ribbed undershirt covers his torso. The contours of his body leave a flirtatious outline beneath the thin fabric. We don't need to see his naked chest. In fact, we never do. But this is better. Hmm, yes, this the slight withholding is always oh, even more tantalizing. It's true. I, I mean, is this the best Denzel's ever looked, Carly? I mean, there's a whole run of 90s films here that could probably qualify as like the hottest Denzel period, but I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm wondering what it, what it what I works for you. I literally can't answer that question. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I can't. Fair enough. I, I will say for, for me, this is the best looking uh, Jennifer Beals has ever been. Will, are you a fan of Jennifer Beals? Were you part of the flash dance craze? I, I, it missed me by. I, I'm not I that old. Too much. <laughs> yeah, well, I, know. <laughs> I don't think any of us are. None of us are old enough to be part yeah. of that. But I guess, you know, like between this and she makes like a very brief uh, cameo as herself in uh, a film we just covered on the show uh, called Caro Diario by Nanny Moretti in 93. And I had totally missed like ever being like a Jennifer Beals person. And now that like I'm seeing her and like seeing her face and stuff, I'm like, oh, now now I'm a Jennifer Beals person. I also caught her in a like a Jimmy Fallon interview from last year. She's pushing 60 and is maybe better looking now than she's ever been in her life. Like bravo, bravo to an all time hottie. Well, I will take this as uh, as incentive to, you know, like uh, reach back into the catalog and perhaps reacquaint myself with Jennifer Beals. As, you know, like an actress who, yeah, like outside of a uh, flash dance in this movie, like I'm, 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 I'm having a hard time coming up with the other like iconic Jennifer Beals performances. Totally. Yeah. But she's incredible in this film. She's very, and very she's good. She's not in it. I mean, she's maybe in it a total of like 10, 12 minutes tops. And she is just earth shattering. She's kind of doing this thing where she's. She's a little bit trembling, but she's also like clearly a woman who has agency and is like very intent on the thing that she's trying to do. And she's not going to let anyone get in her way. And she just plays it wonderfully. And she's, you know, of course, stunning to look at. Yeah, I think she's she's excellent in the movie. Um, again, like I, I can't really think of any other like canonical Jennifer Beals stuff in it. But I, I know that initially she was interested in the role and there was trepidation about casting her because she had been vocal about her biracial status when she was uh, garnering acclaim and celebrity for Flashdance. And Carl Franklin and the like were worried that it would undermine the reveal. But personally, I actually, I like, again, because like 
Flashdance predates, you know, me as a moviegoer. Uh, I, I didn't know this about her. I wasn't aware of it until it was actually like told to me in the movie. Well, yeah, I mean, and I guess like it's a theme of the movie because like, you know, like like you see someone like Jennifer Beals and you're like, oh, like she she has like light skin, straight hair. She's mm-hmm. oh, she's gorgeous. And like, you know, like for the average like white viewer, it just goes over. It, it doesn't pass for a second. You know, it doesn't there's no friction there for a second. You just assume. And then when you're told, you're like, oh, wow. And then like, I guess like I wonder when I first saw this movie, whether she was, in fact, herself uh, like a uh, biracial and wasn't just you know like uh, like playing the part, but like no, I mean it's an interesting phenomenon that the movie, uh, you know, b- very much plays with, and it's certainly in her performance and 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 uh, own identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you sure this is where Albright's gonna be, right? I guess. Don't so be that, guessing, Joppy. Look, he he done done this kind of thing out there before, so I guess so. Hey, easy, man. What's done got into you? I thought y'all was supposed to be friends. He killed Dupree's girlfriend, correct? You lying? No. I ain't Hold done up, nothing up, like that. Hey, wait, no. <laughs> Hey, let me go easy. Let me go. Wait a minute. Let go of my goddamn arm. Now we need a mouth. The girl got $7,000. What? The girl offered to pay me $7,000 for them pictures. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Where'd Joppy, Mouse? Huh? Where'd Joppy? Uh, he, he right there. What happened? I ain't had no time to be tying him up easy. What? Look, you just said don't shoot him, right? That's right. Well, I didn't. I just, I, I choked him. What? Well, how am I going to help you out if I'm, if I'm back here fooling around with him now? Easy, look, if you ain't want to kill, why'd you leave him with me? Pivoting slightly and pulling out to the full scope of Denzel Washington's career. Uh, Will, we want to ask you, like we'll be asking all of our guests during the month of Denzember, uh, can you name for us your top five Denzel Washington performances? Indeed, I can. And I've actually like I have a number of different ways of answering this question. So if you'll just bear with me, I, I, I wanted to start by doing something, something a little bit different for you guys. Okay. I'm going to give you my top five Denzel reaction gifts. Because you know, when you think about, because like out, out of all actors, Denzel is like the most, there's something about him. That like I think it, it is a testament to his charisma and his star power. And just as a leading man, simply knowing what to do with your face. And I think that's why, like, the, like he has so many of the most potent and useful reaction gifts. So my favorite Denzel reaction gifts is, of course, the famous one from Fallen. You know, where you know you're, you're sort of catch yourself. It's like it's the, it's a reaction that's appropriate when you see a, a celebrity name trending and then you find out that they're not dead. You're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> you're just you're relieved when you see Marty trending yes. on Twitter. Uh, then there is um, the gif of him guzzling vodka in his car from flight, which is just yep. you know, that's an appropriate appropriate Love reaction it. to have. Uh, then there's a, the, the the gif. I think it's from a play of him just slamming the door on someone, just being fed up. Oh yes. <laughs> then yep. there is basically like everything from the movie Training Day, but I'm gonna just say the gif of him saying my beep. 
Yes, <laughs> which is of course, know? absolutely. And then, of course, and then, and then there's one that's not from a movie, but it's his reaction at an award show that is the reverse yes! of the fallen gift, where it's like you you start hearing something that sounds good, and then as it goes on, you're like, no, 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 that's bad. <laughs> so those those are my favorite oh, Denzel reaction gifts. But like in terms of my favorite Denzel performances, I had to break this down in like. Am I am I like just for the sake of argument, am I going to include Spike Lee and Tony Scott? Because if that is the case, I've got Man on Fire, Malcolm X, Unstoppable, He Got Game, and then Glory would be the one not directed by Tony Scott mm. or Spike Lee. But if I'm excluding just like the the mega titans of Scott and Lee, I would say my top five Denzel performances are Glory, this one, Devil in a Blue Dress, Ricochet, Philadelphia. And uh, the tragedy of Macbeth was that five, and then we can throw Fallen in there maybe as a wild card. You got it, absolutely. I fucking love Fallen. You, uh, I mean, I know we're we're still early into Denzember, but uh, you were the first person to mention Ricochet on the show. Ooh, it's a, it's ooh, a hit factory ooh, ooh. favorite. Ooh, uh, John Lithgow in that movie traumatized me, and I saw that movie on TV as a kid, <laughs> and yeah. Lithgow's performance in that movie terrified me it, terrified. it gave me nightmare it gave me nightmares yes absolutely yeah outside of any title directed by brian de palma the scariest that lithgow has ever <laughs> oh, been bar, in a movie bar none this- i um i fucking love ricochet it's one of my favorite movies it's one of my favorite denzel movies i think it's absolutely it's so fucking twisted insane it's oh. so twisted so speaking of great denzel gifts I'm i don't sick. know if you can see this well but can you see the like oh yeah yeah that's from, that's from ricochet yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. The top <laughs> that is one of my favorite denzel gifts he's doing his like, like his cagney white heat moment kind of yes. yeah <laughs> <laughs> he's like underlit because he's standing on top yeah. of a roof and he's yeah. just like uh it's also so good. in watts i think yeah yeah other great reaction gifts from denzel uh we talked with edward onweso jr about uh his scene in flight at the hearing where he says, I'm drunk right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm drunk right now. Got, yeah. <laughs> and just his face. And uh, the uh, Malcolm slamming the table gif is the one that everyone uses. Oh, and then, and then we, I, I simply have to mention, yeah, that brother's starving. Yeah. <laughs> which, is, which, has been, which has been repurposed to such great use, you know? Like, yes. I just love all the, the, these sort of like mutations and reappropriations of, of individual moments of like expressing emotion in a movie that can be like, in, like out of context can be like intended as the exact opposite and i think that's like yes like i said i think there's something about denzel and just the way he, like i said like just the way he like can use his face on screen that i think lent like what makes him such a good actor is what lends itself to how how useful these reaction gifts are in the kind of internet argot of you know communicating through memes and uh g- animated gifts yeah yeah and you bring up a good point about him sort of like as a pop cultural fixture it's it's that he knows how to use his face but it's also his face is so pleasant to look at right like he has such a beautiful face (laughs) that like of course you want to use it as a reaction gif of course you want to see it like as in as many places in your feed as possible and i think about like how I was reading like an old interview magazine. It was from like early. It was like 90, 91, an interview magazine um, cover story of him. And it's one of the few pieces at the time that talks about him as like an artist and an actor and isn't just talking about his beauty. I like 
spent a lot of time reading of like sort of contemporary like 90s commentary on him and like movie reviews and like all of them inevitably talk about how gorgeous he is and I think that's like important because he's a beautiful man but it's interesting that that is like so much of his ascendance I think is like wrapped up in the fact that he is just an Adonis and like (laughs) truly breathtaking to behold and it it is you know, I think it's easy for us to forget that in the early 90s, like he was not considered like a prestige actor in 91, 92, 93 when he's well, doing yeah, like, like Ricochet. Ricochet is like, yeah, like a twisted like psycho thriller movie. Like it's not totally. Like, yeah. He's and, you know, in his his towards the after Philadelphia and I'd say a bunch of other films like Malcolm X, like he he gains that reputation. But there's still this conversation about him and his beauty and that. You know, we don't need to get into the ways in which white America does that to black people broadly. But I do think that, like, being able to sort of talk about him as an artist in and of, like, in his own right is important. But you can't extrapolate his, how entrenched he is in popular culture. You can't, or you can't withdraw, I should say, the fact that he is beautiful as being like why his persistence in our society is like is so durable because it, you know it, he, I, it is on the uh, on the first episode of movie mindset where Hessa and I did uh, deja vu and man mm-hmm. on fire i compared denzel washington i said that he was like our generation's paul newman and by that, I mean, he's like the perfect leading man, like incomparably handsome and like, you know, charismatic to, to, to watch on screen. But also similar to Newman that I think like he has an ability in his acting to like let let his audience in on like a private vulnerability of his characters in, in like, a, in, in like a, a similar way that he's just like he, he's 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 vulnerable. He's not just like impossibly cool and untouchable in a way that, for instance, like Harrison Ford is another actor who's like unbelievably handsome and charismatic. But kind Kind of like always plays himself to a certain degree but is mm-hmm. also so untouchably cool that yes. like it, it's a little it's a little like there, there's a little less to grasp onto. yeah it's one of the reasons i love ricochet i mean that movie is all him just being totally, totally i mean his life goes his vulnerable. life really goes to shit in that movie. oh god <laughs> yeah to hell and back for sure in that one he's literally like drugged and like raped in that movie he is indeed <laughs> and he he does being on dangerous amounts of heroin really, really well sure in that does. film. So, <laughs> um, well, I, I think with that, we have arrived at the end of our conversation for today about Devil in a Blue Dress and Denzel Washington. Will Meneker, uh, thank you again so very much for joining us today. You've been an absolute delight. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, I can't imagine that anyone listening to us right now doesn't know where to find you already. But just in case, uh, where about the internets are you? Anything interesting happening with Movie Mindset or Chapo soon? Uh, Movie Mindset is on a little bit of a hiatus, but like, don't fret. I'm sure we'll have some bonus episodes. Like, we'll just drop kind of unscheduled. Um, certainly, as Oscar season heats up and just sort of the, the the year ends, and we can perhaps you know talk about some contemporary movies as well. But like, there'll be an, an official second season of Movie Mindset. Uh, probably, you know, like spring 2024 is, I think, what we're aiming at right now. But, you know, I'm on Twitter at Will Meneker and Chapo Trap House is on Patreon. So if you want, all Movie Mindset episodes are available on our Patreon. And they're also available through the Patreon store as like, you know, like you can download all of them as a zip file if you don't feel like subscribing. Very cool. From our end of things, you can follow along with the show at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, we have a Patreon 
as well. Patreon.com slash HitFactoryPod, where you can get the full Hit Factory experience. Uh, a couple Denzember episodes in a row will be on there in the coming weeks. So if you want to continue to hear us talk about uh, the man, the myth, the legend, uh, they will be there for you and you do need to subscribe. Uh, I'll give a shout out to our overlords. Their names are Linda and Jared Murray. Thank you so much for your continued support. And we will catch you all on the next one. Take care, everybody. I've got a west side, baby. She lives way across town. I've got a west side, baby. She lives way across town. And when I'm with my baby, I don't want a soul around. Now she's kind of tall and lanky. She's always dressing swell. She sets my soul on fire. When she rings my front doorbell, yes, I've got a west side, baby. She lives way across town. And when I'm with my baby, don't want a soul around Now Monday morning early Someone banged up on my door I knew it wasn't my baby Cause she's never knocked before So I laid in bed and wondered who could the caller be? I thought it was the insurance man. Cause he's been heckling for me. Crazy about my west side, baby. She lives way across town.